I want this morning and next week to talk about uh, God's love for cities. Uh, actually, uh, the Bible has a lot to say about cities, and these are just two messages from a teaching series that uh, has a number of others among them. But uh, I, uh, I want us to know that God loves Bowling Green, Amen. and he loves cities. He loves people. The cities are full of people, and Cities are strategic in the kingdom of God. In fact, we began in a garden, but we're going to end up in a city one day. And we're going to end up in the city we should have built had Adam and Eve not fallen. Because God created man, and he said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and I want, I'm giving you this world. It's my world, but you're going to be a manager over it, and I want you to see what you can do with it. Build something out of it. God gave us uh, bits of his creativity. And, of course, we've seen some marvelous things and uh, advancements that, are, that have been God-given to men in terms of doing that. But one day we're going to live in a city that far outshines anything that we could ever imagine here on earth. And God, God cares for a city. So this morning we're going to look at Sodom and Gomorrah. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at uh, Jonah and Nineveh. Let's look at uh, Genesis 18, beginning with verse 16. Uh, Jesus has appeared to Abraham. He has some companions with him. And uh, verse 16 says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold so as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I'll not destroy it. 
Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. And may the Lord add his blessing to his word today. You know, all of us network with uh, friends and colleagues. And with uh, ministers, the conversation often turns to the silly things that happen in church. We delight in laughing at ourselves. Often the remark is made that many of the funny moments in church would be good fodder for a book, like the one entitled, As We Continue to Lift Up Sister Smith's Leg in Prayer. I wonder if other professionals share Uh, enjoy uh, sharing their gaffes. You know, one group of professionals that people seem to love to to roast are lawyers. Uh, So if you're an attorney this morning, there's plenty our way too, so don't uh, be too frustrated. But here, here are some things that have actually been said in court. Attorney, the myasthenia gravis doesn't affect your memory at all. Witness, yes. Attorney, and in what ways does it affect your memory? Witness, I forget. You forget? Can you give me an example of something you forgot? (laughs) (laughs) Attorney, now doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until the next morning? (laughs) The witness, did you actually pass the bar exam? Attorney, the youngest son, the 20-year-old, how old is he? (laughs) Witness, he's 20, much like your IQ. (laughs) Attorney, she had three children, right? Yes. How many were boys? None. Were there any girls? (laughs) Your Honor, I think I need a different attorney. Can I get a new attorney? Attorney, how was your first marriage terminated? Witnessed by death. Attorney, and by whose death was it terminated? (laughs) Witness, take a guess. (laughs) Attorney, can you describe the individual? He was about medium height and had a beard. Attorney, was it male or female? (laughs) Witness, unless the circus was in town, I'm going with male. Attorney, doctor, how many of your autopsies have you performed on dead people? (laughs) Witness all of them. The live ones put up too much of a fight. (laughs) Attorney, do you recall the time you examined the body? Witness the autopsy started around 8.30 p.m. Attorney, and Mr. Denton was dead at the time? (laughs) Witness, if not, he was by the time I finished. Here's here's my favorite. Attorney, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy. Witness, no. How can you be so sure, doctor? because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. (laughs) Attorney, I see, but could the patient have still been alive nonetheless? 
witness. Yes, it's possible that he was alive and practicing law. <laughs> uh, th this passage strikes me as a little weird. It feels like two individuals in the market haggling over the price of melons. This story gives us the first extended prayer in Scripture, but Abraham is doing more than petitioning. He, he's not simply praying. He's priesting. Abraham is the first priest in Scripture, and in so doing, he is serving as the legal representative for the city of Sodom. Actually, I need to correct that a little bit. Abraham is not really the first recorded priest. There's this shadowy person by the name of Melchizedek who's a type of Christ who, who comes before. But, but Abraham provides the first case study of priestly activity. God's invitation and Abraham's execution are surprising. In verse 17, the Lord, and I believe in this instance and in all the Old Testament instances where this, the angel of the Lord comes who is really Christ, this is the Lord Jesus Christ who's come down, the pre-incarnate Christ. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Jesus and his two companions are en route to judge the societies of the cities of the plain because they have become so vicious unjust and corrupt, that in verse 20 we read, there was an outcry against them. Listen to Jesus' commentary in verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. The word outcry is used in Scripture to indicate the pleas of the oppressed, the cries of people being crushed, the victims of violence, cruelty, and injustice. Those, those cries are so great. Jesus says, I'm going down to see for myself. Does it really merit divine judgment? People who have difficulty conceiving that, that a merciful God can at the same time be a judging deity, have never, have never considered the outcry of the oppressed. A merciful God who doesn't respond to the oppressed is not a caring God. What is intriguing is, the, is that this gracious and just God invites. You could, you could really say he initiates the intervention of Abraham. In verse 17, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? When, you know, when you say to somebody, I don't know if I should tell you this, you've already decided to inform them. You just want them to know that they're special, that you really trust them. In verse 22, the Lord sends his two companions away so that he and Abraham are totally alone. It's another way to invite someone to talk. If not, Jesus says, I will know. It's another, he's saying that with Abraham there, it's another encouragement for Jesus and Abraham to dialogue. He's saying, I'm thinking about doing this, but I'd like your input. I mean, this whole passage is amazing. 
God is walking down. Why? Why is he walking? Why doesn't he just appear? He, he's God after all. He doesn't have to walk. He knows, but God comes down. That's what God does. That's what Jesus does. He comes down to Abraham and to us, and he, he speaks to Abraham in this familiar manner and in these accessible terms. He's treating Abraham like a person, someone he wants to interact with. He invites Abraham in. Abraham picks up the cues, and in verse 23 we read, and Abraham approached him. Now the word, is a, the word approached is, a, is, a, is significant. It's a technical term. The verse before, verse 22, says Abraham remained standing before the Lord, and then he approaches him. Now what does that mean? He's already there. He's already just maybe a few feet away. What does it mean? He approached him. He's already standing before him. Abraham, it's, it's a technical legal term. Abraham is approaching the bench. He is coming with a case. Again, this is a legal term. God has invited Abraham to intervene on behalf of Sodom and to be their legal representative. So Abraham assumes the priesthood. He accepts the responsibility of serving as a representative of the people of the plain. But he, he executes this priesthood surprisingly in three ways. Now I use the word surprisingly because it is unprecedented in his culture. He pleads for them in a manner that is universal theological, and unfortunately, partial. First, this is an incredibly universalistic prayer. He's not merely asking God to save his family. He, he, could, have, he could have done that. That would have been culturally correct in his, in his society. But what he's doing is absolutely remarkable. In verse 24, he says, Would you spare the place? Abraham's like Moses, Amos, Jeremiah, and Samuel, all of whom pleaded with God on the nation's behalf. Abraham, however, throws a curve. He doesn't pray for his own people only, though he's certainly thinking about Lot. He never mentions him. Rather, Abraham is beseeching God for Sodom itself, for Canaanites, and this makes this episode unique in the Hebrew Scriptures. He is a priest pleading for a people who are not his own. Would you spare the place? It is, it is remarkably universal. His supplication is also a deep theological exploration. He, he's not just petitioning, he's a lawyer, and like any good defense attorney, he assumes the law is a given. He's not saying, Your Honor, my client is guilty of breaking law, but don't you think it's really a stupid law? No, Abraham begins with the law. He starts with the justice of God. In the famous verse, verse 25, he says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He's not questioning God's justice. This is, this is a rhetorical question. Of course God is just, and of course God will do what's right. 
Abraham is not ignoring the law of God. He recognizes that God is holy. He cannot overlook his precepts. He demands righteousness. Abraham begins from the vantage point of the law, but then he asks an astounding question. Will you not spare? The word is forgive. Will you not forgive the place? Will you not forgive the whole group? Will you not forgive the unrighteous many for the righteous few? Abraham is not looking for salvation for these people in spite of God's holiness. You are a God who values righteousness, he is acknowledging. He is asking, could you value the righteousness of the few so much that it covers the unrighteousness of the many? Could you spare and forgive the whole city for a righteous remnant inside? He is asking, is our record all we have to go on? Or is it possible that the righteousness of someone else, the few, could save the undeserving, unrighteous sinfulness of the many? Now, we in America live in one of the most individualistic cultures in the history of the world. We deny the notion of corporate responsibility. We, we believe in individual responsibility. It doesn't matter what my father or grandfather did. It doesn't matter what my race did. I'm not responsible for any of that. I'm not responsible for anyone else but myself. It's only what I've done that matters. No one else's record can influence me. I stand or fall, I sink or swim, I'm, I'm judged strictly on what I have done. I am responsible for me and that's that. Does that sound right to you? It sounds pretty American, doesn't it? Of course, there's an element of truth to that. I am responsible for my decisions and actions. They do have profound impact on my destiny. But there, there's corporate responsibility as well. I participate in some degree with the record of other people I am in solidarity with. Achan's family learned that the hard way. When Israel invaded the promised land, God said, I, I don't want you to be imperialistic like other people. I don't want you to think that you can get rich by taking from others. And so when you take Jericho, all the wealth, it's the first city, it's mine, all the wealth, will go into the tabernacle of the Lord for God's work to care for the poor. I want you to recognize that whatever you have really belongs to me and I don't want you to believe that you can get rich by colonizing and plundering other people. Of course, Achan disobeys God. In Judges 7, he sees money and other valuables. He takes them, he hides them. He, he, he breaks the law of God. And it results in Israel's defeat at Ai. And when Joshua complains, God says, Israel, not Achan, he said, Israel has sinned. Israel lied. Israel stole. Israel tried to hide their sin from God. And the end of the story is Achan's entire family is executed. Our culture doesn't escape these ramifications. Some of my African-American friends say, if you're white, you're participating in the privilege of being white, 
which has been bequeathed to you by the unjust behavior of your ancestors, and you're living off that. The record of someone else with whom I have some solidarity does come to me. I do bear some responsibility. Abraham turns this concept of corporate responsibility around in a fantastic way. He asks a mind-boggling question. Could this principle work in reverse? If it is true that the sins of others can make me guilty, what is the possibility that the righteousness of someone else that I'm in solidarity with can come to me as well? What Abraham is doing is radically revolutionary. He is imagining what can determine God's treatment of the whole human community. Must it be the evil record of the many, or could it be the righteous record of the few? Abraham is not moving from the associated corporate responsibility to the individualism of the West. Oh, no. Abraham is moving to a bold new kind of joint connection. Could not God, Abraham wonders, so recognize the righteousness that a small community of honorable bring that it would provide reprieve for the whole city? It's important to note that Abraham must be in great anguish at this moment, knowing as modern people sometimes refuse to acknowledge that he is but dust and ashes. He has no right to ask God for anything, let alone this. Like the person who stays up all night waiting for the sun to rise, it finally dawns on him how amazing Yahweh's graciousness really is. It, it exponentially increases his courage as the dialogue continues until he arrives at the astonishing fact that even a small number of righteous people could so please a holy God that it would stem judgment. So predominant is God's desire to save over his will to punish. We'll learn from Job next week that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, quick to save. You know, I hear some preachers glibly shout, if God doesn't judge America, he's, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You've heard it, I'm sure. Usually it comes in a diatribe against some sinners whose brokenness partly manifests in their sexual choices. Let me first of all categorically say that God will never have to and he will never apologize to anyone. He is absolutely, utterly righteous. Second, second, Sodom was not judged for sexual perversion, although it is worthy of punishment along with every other category of sin. Ezekiel 16.49 says, listen to this, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. That's why God judged Sodom. The outcries of the oppressed reached God's ears. And a loving God could not shut his ears to that without responding. 
The core of the gospel is that God is not willing that any perish, but that all would come to repentance. God is for us. He's for us. He wants people to be saved. And Abraham taps into the nature of our compassionate, gracious God and asks, is my only hope my own record? Or does the uprightness of a loving God prize righteousness so much that the virtue of someone else could save me? And to Abraham's astonishment over and over, the answer is a resounding yes. So great, so preponderant is my will to save over my will to punish that I can love the righteousness of a few and that it will cover the unrighteousness of the many. So Abraham begins his entreaty. <laughs> How far will this principle stretch? Begins with 50. And then he negotiates down 40, 30, all the way to 10. And just at the climax, Abraham abruptly quits and goes home. His prayer doesn't save Sodom. His high priesthood didn't work. It's like an unfinished symphony. It's like he plays seven notes of the scale and lets us down by not sounding the eighth. It's like he plays do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. We want to cry, what's up with that? Where's the do? <laughs> you know, we're waiting for Abraham to say, Lord God, I'll speak one more time. How amazing that a loving God would save a city for 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, but, but Lord, would you save the city for one? Would you save it for, for one? Could one righteous person be enough to save the whole? And we're waiting, we're waiting with bated breath for that question, would you say for one, and we're waiting for God to say, yes, if it's the right one. He doesn't do it. He goes home at 10, why? One possibility is that Abraham suddenly realizes what he's doing and simply loses his nerve to continue. I mean, I, I can hear his self-talk. What, what are you doing? What are you, what are you saying? Why, why, can you, why would you press this any further? It's also plausible that the number 10 had significance. Later, it would take 10 members to form a synagogue. It could be that Abraham realized if it came down to only one, the only person he had was Lot. And while Lot was a believer, he, he wasn't vicious, cruel, or oppressive. He but even Lot was only relatively righteous. Abraham learned an amazing lesson, an amazing principle. The righteousness of someone else could save an unrighteous person. It's almost like Abraham discovered a path, a road through a seemingly impregnable mountain of God's justice, but he couldn't walk it himself. He didn't have a truly righteous person in the center of the city to ask God about, so he went home. It's what we need today. We need a high priest who eternally stays before God. We need a high priest who doesn't just know about the case, but who executes it. And that is the good news of the gospel. 
As great as Abraham was, Abraham our father, we have, we have a far superior one. A few comparisons. Abraham prayed for people who were hostile. They were a threat to his existence. They could have hurt him. They could have killed him. Abraham risked his life for the people he was praying for. Think of that. Remember, Hagar was, was amazed she walked away alive after, after talking to the Lord God Almighty. Abraham is going before this awesome God, and he's arguing with him. It really is terrifying. He risked his life for these people. But our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave his life for the people he was praying for. Hebrews 7, 23 through 28 sums it all up. Now, there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is praying for you. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Abraham discovered that principle, but Jesus Christ executed the principle by what he did on earth. On the night before he died, Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer. And in the middle of the intercession, he is asking God to love and treat you and me the same way that God loves and treats the Son, Jesus. Listen to his words in, in John 17, 19. For their sake, he's talking about his disciples and us. He's talking about you and me. For, their, for them I sanctify myself that they may be truly sanctified. Jesus set himself apart so you and I could be holy, pure, and righteous in God's presence. Jesus, the only utterly, absolute, genuinely righteous person who has ever lived, he lived the life we should have lived, and then he went to the cross and shed his blood, and his blood makes us clean, and he died the death we should have died. He truly came and loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he died loving his neighbor as himself. Jesus completed the symphony. He, he sang the do. Abraham should have gone one step further in his high priestly prayer. He should have interceded. He should have said, oh, Lord, would you save for one, for the sake of one? And God would have countered, yes, if you have the right one, if you have my son, here's the gospel. When we believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, when we stake our life on that, when we put our faith in him, we enter solidarity with him, and his righteousness becomes ours. We are spared. We are forgiven for his sake. There's a third component to this story. Abraham was the first priest. He was a bridge. 
A bridge spans a gap that brings people across in a way they couldn't without the bridge. A priest is a bridge that brings people to God, otherwise they couldn't get there on their own. A priest is grounded in God, but he's also grounded in people. Abraham was grounded in God. He believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. We see him in the presence of God. They're friends. On the other hand, he is deeply sympathetic to the needing, to the needy, the hurting, and the broken. The priest is one who helped the poor. Jesus sent the lepers to go and show themselves to the priest because they were the public health officers. But Abraham was not just sympathetic about his own people's needs. He is, he's a priest for the Canaanites, a people of a different race, people who were his enemies, his oppressors. You and I finish the symphony. We are the, oh, we complete the circle. In Revelation 1, 5, and 6, we read to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Live such good lives among the pagans, among the outsiders, among the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. We're the body of Christ. We are his bridge between lost and hurting people and, and God. We have access to God. We can know him intimately and thoroughly and, and carry his love to people in our world. So excited to hear Marshall talk about going out to the community. Please sign up for, what, for that. Be a part of that. That's what it's all about. God loves Bowling Green, but he loves Bowling Green through us. We're the ones who stand between, between the lost and God, and, and we're the bridge, and we call them to God. It was impacted recently, and I, I'm closing with this, by a reflection written by Samuel Moore, Samuel Moore Shoemaker, entitled, I Stand by the Door. Listen to what he wrote. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use by going way inside and staying there while so many are still outside and they as much as I crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only a wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the walls like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is, is for men to find that door, the, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. 
They live on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It is a vast roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and, and know the depth and heights of God and, all, and call outside to the rest of us how, how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in, sometimes venture in a little farther, but my, my place seems to be closer to the opening, so I stand by the door. There's another reason why I stand there. Some people get partway in and become afraid lest God and the zeal of his house devour them. For God is so very great and asks all of us and these people feel a cosmic claustrophobia and they want to get out. Let me out, they cry. And the people way inside only terrify them more. Somebody must be by the door to tell them they are spoiled for the old life. They have seen too much. One taste, once taste God and nothing but God will do anymore. Somebody, somebody must be watching for the frightened who seek to sneak out just where they came in to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in do not see how near these are to leaving preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would run away. So for them too, I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help people who have not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know him. Know he is there, but not so far from men as not to hear them and remember that they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I'm intended to put on the latch, so I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I had rather be the doorkeeper. So I stand by the door. Will you bow with me in prayer?